going to be from the book of Romans, chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Excuse me. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also must reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good evening. You guys doing well? Okay. Cool. All four of us, we're doing well. Let me say that again. Are you guys doing well? Okay, that's better. Good to, good, to, good to see you. Good to hear that. Enthusiasm, the book of Romans, how the gospel changes everything is the subtitle of this series, working our way through the book of Romans. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans chapter 5. We're looking at verses 20, uh, 12 through 21. Sound a little confusing as he was reading? There's a lot of stuff there. It's a pretty hard text, but I think it's a, really an important text. And so you can see the title of this weekend's message. He's kind of wrapping up a, a, as he's working through, as we're working through these chapters, he's wrapping up justification by faith, and he's trying to drive home right here. God's grace is greater than our sin and suffering. That's, that's the big idea of the text that we just read. God's grace is greater than our sin and suffering. Do you guys believe that? Okay, I wasn't very enthusiastic. Do you guys believe that? God's grace is greater than our sin and suffering. No doubt about it. Yes, that's much better. Um, it, it happened a number of years ago. It was quite a number of years ago. I graduated from high school before I married Nancy. And me and a bunch of guys used to go out to a place that was called the Flumes. Anybody remember what the flumes are? <laughs> Why were you guys going out there? <laughs> so we'd go out to the flumes, and the flumes are, is an irrigation ditch coming off of Lake Pleasant. And there was, it was a pretty good-sized irrigation ditch, wasn't it? And in fact, there was, a, there was this where the irrigation ditch would go kind of down, kind of on a grade, and it would become very mossy. So we get our sneakers and get in there and we kind of surf down. Anybody do that? You guys remember doing that? Okay. 
Uh, were you intoxicated when you did that? Okay. Okay. I wasn't. I've never drank, but I went with my friends, and, and so we would do that. And so we'd surf down. It's kind of dangerous, but the water was, you know, enough going down there that if you slip back, you wouldn't get hurt too badly. And, um, and so a few times I'd slip, but my friends talked me into jumping off of the little waterfall area at the, at the end. Anybody jump off the waterfall? Did you guys do that? Okay. So I should have never done that because I jumped off the waterfall. And before I jumped off the waterfall at the end, the guys said, hey, listen, make sure you jump beyond the water. And so I didn't jump beyond the water. And the waterfall drove me down into the water, just spun me around like a washing machine. And I had a moment there of like, what the heck was I thinking? You know, like, that was stupid. And then I had a moment of hopelessness. I thought, I'm going to drown. And I was able to fight my way back up. And as I, I, I got up, I was gasping for air. And it was like, I, I, I had a moment of like, I'm going to drown. I felt a moment of hopelessness. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever felt hopeless? Have you ever had those moments in your life where you thought, oh my goodness, this isn't going to work out? In the seventh year of our marriage, Nancy and I both felt hopeless. We thought, man, this is over. We had three kids. We thought we were going to crash and burn. I look back over our history, and there were times in, with, with my job. I remember working with a guy that was just, I felt like it was just a hopeless situation. I was an apprentice as a pipe fitter, and I couldn't get out of this. This guy was very abusive. He was hard to get along with. Every morning I had to face this. I felt hopeless in that. We felt hopeless in our finances. There was a time when we, we, we thought, man, we're not going to make it. We felt hopeless, and we have felt hopeless with our children. It's like, man, what is going on here? Nancy felt hopeless. I felt hopeless with her a number of years ago. She had gallbladder surgery. And after the surgery, she was sick for a whole year. She lost a lot of weight. She was in pain. I thought, are we going to live with this pain the rest of our lives? So I could give you a number of different ways that we have certainly felt hopeless. And I asked our staff this last week, if you've ever felt hopeless... And then how did you pull yourself out of that hopelessness? And it was quite interesting as I interacted with them. And what I found is that with all of us, when we face hopelessness, there's this fork in the road. And it really comes down to, are we going to choose despair and bitterness and allow that to overwhelm us? As it tells us in Hebrews 13, 15, don't miss the grace of God and let a bitter root grow up and cause trouble and defile many. I can take the route of despair, or you can take the route of dependency upon Christ. Rather than becoming bitter, you can become better, stronger, wiser, and deeper. If you will let it push you much deeper, drive you like a nail deeper into the love of Christ. But it really comes down to you, your choice that you make when you face that hopelessness, when you face the difficulties in your life. And I can't help but think that there's probably people here this this night and this weekend that are in that place of hopelessness, maybe physically, spiritually, relationally, maybe financially. There could be any number of places you could be where you're experiencing that hopelessness. And I know that this study for you is not academic. It's very personal. And I, I can't help but think that God wants to speak to you here tonight as we study His Word. You can see there on your notes, if you ever think of any person, situation, or even yourself is hopeless, then you don't understand the grace of God. See, that's the hope that we have as believers. That's what he's trying to get across in this text. You don't understand the grace of God because God's grace is greater than our sin and suffering. I mean, it just goes beyond our sin and suffering. 
fact, you've heard these statements many times before from me, I'm sure. I mean, you should have these memorized. No sin or suffering is a match for God's redeeming, restoring grace. I mean, we should be the most hope-filled people on the planet. Yeah, we're going to have times of hopelessness, but if we come to that fork in the road, we take that route that presses us near to God, find that dependency upon Him, look to Him, trust in Him, we're going to find that renewed hope. Whatever the capacity for human sin and suffering, the gospel gives us a greater capacity to overcome and live life to its fullest, even in the midst of that time of hopelessness. John 10.10, 10, kind of a theme verse here, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. That's all around us. But I have come that you might have life and have it to the fullest. So he's saying in the midst of our hopelessness, in the midst of despair, in the midst of difficulties, we have hope in Christ. We can have a fullness of life in him. Jesus, these were the last words Jesus said to his disciples before he prayed the, the high priestly prayer, 17th chapter of, of John. And this is the last words he's going to speak to them before he's going to be hanging on the cross. And he tells them, he's very upfront with them. He says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have persecution. You're going to take a beating. By the way, almost every one of them were going to face martyrdom. You're going to have peace. You can have peace in the midst of martyrdom. In this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I've overcome the world. So that's part of that hope that we have. Now, before we dive into this text, let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray and just ask God to, to guide us through this. Maybe if you're here tonight and you're having maybe an over, overwhelming sense of hopelessness in your life, or maybe you've been battling that for a while, just allow God to speak to you here tonight. Father God, we pray, Romans 15, 13, may you, the God of hope, fill us tonight with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we may abound in hope through the study of your infallible and eternal word we pray these things in Jesus' beautiful and glorious name, and everyone said, amen. So now, where, have we, where are we in our study? It's always kind of important to kind of, kind of remember the context of where we are in our study in the book of Romans. Romans uh, 1, 16 and 17, remember the thesis statement of the whole book. It's all about, it's all about the gospel. Uh, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And then Romans 1, 18 through 3, 20 I mean, Friday night smackdown, I mean, for about three or four weeks, we, we heard, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I mean, he's just leveled the playing field. All of us, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We were created by God for God to give glory to God. None of us have lived for his glory. We've lived for our own glory. We've lived for the glory of something or someone else. And, and, we, and we are hopeless in that sin, except for God sending his son to redeem us and to rescue us. Romans 3, 21 through 31, the rest of that chapter, we are justified freely by faith through the blood of Christ. The greatest gift you'll ever receive is the gift of salvation by grace through faith in Christ. Not a better gift on this planet earth. I mean, through that gift, you are reconciled to God. You have relationship with the, with the eternal God. You're brought back into relationship with him. And then in Romans chapter 4, we looked at the anatomy 
uh, of saving faith. I talked that weekend about boasting in Christ's work, not in our work. And then Russ talked about application of saving faith. He talked in there about trusting God in impossible circumstances through a friendship relationship with God and how to narrow that gap. Oftentimes we have that gap, a gospel gap of belief and our behavior is something contrary to our beliefs. How do we do that? Friendship relationship with God. Focus on the object of our faith. The more you get to know the object of, the, of your faith, the more your faith will grow. Spend time with him. Get to know him. And then last weekend, Pastor Mark did a great job speaking to us on the advantages of saving faith, Romans 5, 1 through 11. And he talked about this EG's benefit sandwich. Anybody go to EG's as a result of that? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, hey, I saw, almost, I saw a lot of people going to EG's as a result of that. And here's what I'm thinking, okay, just between us. I think he owns stock in EG's. <laughs> or maybe he's got some sort of sponsorship deal. I think he's getting a kickback because he made much of EG's, didn't he? I think he's got some kind of nostalgic fondness because he was raised in Tucson, EG's all over Tucson. I hate to tell you this, that when they built that EG's over there, when we drove by, I go, nobody's going to go there. I've never even heard of EGs, slushies or what kind of drinks, icy drinks or what? <laughs> Come on. I guess they're all over Tucson and uh, they're pretty popular. But I was talking trash, sorry Mark. <laughs> Little did I know that we had somebody on staff that just absolutely loves EGs. Okay, that's cool, I love it. And so tonight's message is sponsored by In-N-Out Burger. Hey, have you, have you ever had a double-double or a triple-triple Grace Burger? <laughs> hey, those double-doubles are good, baby. Woo! Nothing better. Okay. So he, he talked about this EG's benefit sandwich, but did you remember his point, or were you just thinking about the EG's sandwich? You remember his point? Remember he had two loaves, I mean two uh, pieces of bread. He's got the top and the bottom, and what was in the middle. So what was the top? Anybody remember? Oh, don't. He's sitting right back here. Come on. No, it's a new relationship. We got a new relationship. And then what was in the middle? What was this? New hope. Oh, okay. Now we're working here. Okay, what was on the bottom? What was the bread on the bottom? New relationship. That was how it was laid out. Really, he did a great job with that. It was phenomenal. When you look at the when you look at the text, it starts off with this new relationship we have with Christ. This is the benefit. Oh, my goodness. And then he talks about new hope, and then he talked about the new relationship. It kind of expounds on that relationship. Here's what's fascinating about this. Now, do you guys remember what the, the hope comes from? You remember what, that, what the meat is in that, uh, in that EG's benefits sandwich? Remember, suffering leads to what? Endurance. Endurance leads to character. Character leads to hope. Yep, you got it. That's it. Okay, you know what? You guys are going to have to pull your notes out and study that or go back and listen to that message again. Because it's, it was really, a, really, really good because it ties right in with what we're talking about here. So suffering. We, now, did you notice he says, in this relationship, we stand in the grace of God and we rejoice in the suffering and even, no, we rejoice in the glory of God, but even more we rejoice in the suffering. What? We're going to talk about that. 
because suffering brings endurance, endurance, character, character, hope. And then verse 5, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So that's, that's the context right there. So keep that in mind. Now here's where he's going with that. Take a look at your notes here. In Romans 5, 12 through 21, Paul contrasts Adam, the sinful father of all people, with Christ, the sinless Savior of all people. So in this last part, this is the last time he's going to be talking about justification, where he sets us free from the penalty of sin. As we move into chapters 6, 7, and 8, they're phenomenal. They really talk about life change. They're talking about sanctification. And so when we head into 6, we're going to talk about the principles of life change. How does our life change through the gospel? And then, of course, chapter 7 talks about why it's so hard. And then chapter 8, it talks about how to apply those principles to our life. It really talks about the Spirit-filled life. So this is where he's ending, really talking about justification by faith. And he's really trying to drive home this idea that God's grace is greater than our sin and our suffering. And so all that Adam brought into the world, Christ overcame, is really the point that he's making here. The grace that the world longs for is available in Christ for all who embrace the free gift of salvation. This is what we all long for. Adam was a type of the one who was to come. It made that very clear in verse 14 of our text. In all the ways Adam fell short, Christ triumphed. That's the idea here. So in this text, we see three contrasts Paul made between Adam and Christ. So I kind of summarized the three here. Now, the idea here is similar to that of when you look in the Old Testament of David and Goliath. Remember when David fought Goliath, if David won, all of Israel won. So he was the representative of all of Israel. If Goliath won, all of the Philistines would have won the battle. Very similar to, and that's found in 1 Samuel 17, very similar to when we vote politicians to represent us. Decisions they make have an effect on us. So this is kind of the idea here behind that. Parents have a great effect or impact on their kids. So a little bit of an understanding of what he's saying here. Now, before we head into this, I'm gonna, before we look at the three contrasts here, I wanted you to see what he's doing here in Romans 5. So I gave you kind of a survey, and I'm going to walk through this. I want you to understand the emphasis he's placing on God's grace is greater than our sin and suffering. Look at verse 2. It's on your notes. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, verse 3, more than that, more than that, what? We rejoice in our sufferings. Well, I mean, that sounds crazy, doesn't it? You gonna, do you rejoice in sufferings more than you rejoice in the glory of God? No, not typically. But he's, he's making a point here. If we understood God's grace being greater than our sin and suffering, we probably would. Look at verse 9. It's on your notes there. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Verse 11. More than that... We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more. <laughs> you getting the point? I mean, this is, he's making a point here. Much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. 
Verse 17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through the one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 20, kind of a summary verse here, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. I mean, we should be the most excited people on the planet because no matter what we face in sin and suffering, God's grace is greater by far. I mean, His presence with us, all that we need is found in Him. Now, here's the three comparisons here. Adam brought sin, Christ brought grace. Verse 12, therefore, just as sin came into the world, keep your Bibles open, you can follow along. Just as sin came into the world through one man, the death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Now, I need to stop here because there's a controversial part to this verse, actually this whole text. How many have ever heard of original sin? You guys have ever heard of original sin? You guys know what original sin is? Original sin, um, and I've taught, it, I've taught it here, original sin, back during our doctrine series, but I, have, I didn't teach it like oftentimes people teach it. Original sin is that all people inherit both the sin and guilt of Adam. So I don't believe that we inherit the guilt of Adam, but I do believe that we inherit the sin of Adam. And so there are those that would teach that we inherit the guilt of of Adam, and I do not believe that. I do not believe the Bible actually teaches that. That creates a major problem. If we are held accountable for Adam's sin, which would include infants and mentally incompetent, that would make God unjust. If everybody across the board, we inherit his guilt, we're responsible for the guilt of Adam. That just makes God unjust in general for all of us, but particularly for infants and mentally incompetent. And this is why Catholics in some Calvinists practice infant baptism. Did you know that Catholics practice this infant baptism because they believe that infants die and go to hell because they've inherited the guilt of Adam? That's insane. That's inconsistent with what the Bible teaches. That's inconsistent with the nature and the character of God. And so it's really important when you hear certain things taught, you need to understand and go back to the Scripture. Make sure it's consistent with the Scripture. Romans 5, 12 through 21, our text, doesn't say we're guilty of Adam's sin. In fact, you'll notice in that verse that I just read, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all of sin. We're responsible for our own sin. I mean, search your Bible. No Bible verse states that we are guilty of Adam's sin, regardless of what people teach out there. In fact, Romans 14, 12, each of us will give an account of himself to God. 2 Corinthians 5:10 makes that very clear. And so there's some really good information. Adam's, Adam Hardwood's, Harwood's Systematic Theology book is a good book on that. He also wrote a booklet titled Born Guilty. Very, very quick read kind of helps you walk through that. Um, so what happens when children die? I believe they, and, and also not just infants, but also mentally incompetent, I believe they go to be with the Lord. And there's many verses I could give you. I'll just give you one, 2 Samuel 12, 23, David at the loss of his infant son, this is what he said, I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. So he's saying, I'm going to go to him. Where are you going, David? He's going to heaven to be with the Lord. Now, if you want more insight on that, you can go to Leighton Flowers' YouTube channel, 
and he actually does about a 15-minute on this. It's titled, Are You Guilty of Adam's Sin? So you can do more research on that. Really good resource. Now, so Adam brought sin. Christ brought grace. Look at verse 15. But the free grace is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So grace, we have grace. Turn to the person next to you and see if they know the definition of grace. Real quick. You guys have good definitions of grace? I think it's bigger than what you may be defining. I mean, because we throw those, those you know, a lot of those defi definitions around. How many were thinking more unmerited favor? Thinking maybe favor. How about uh, sometimes people will use kind of an acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense. So what, were you guys, what are you guys thinking? You can yell out to me. Unmerited favor. So when you think of his favor, so what does that mean? I, I think it means this. He treats us like we're his favorite. And, and only God can do that. God loves all of us as if there's only one of us. And the way to receive that, I think, I think the idea of that, God's, he treats us like we're his favorite. What is true of Christ is true of us. So how much did the Father adore the Son, rejoice over the Son? Love the Son. Well, that's how much He adores, loves, and rejoices over us. What is true of Christ is true of us. If I put my faith in Him, then I receive all that Christ has received. He received all of my sin on the cross. I receive all that His performance or whatever He did to accomplish that. By the way, grace, when we say unmerited favor, it's actually merited favor, but we don't merit it. It's merited through Christ Jesus. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud, he gives grace to the humble. Two of my favorite verses on grace are 2 Corinthians 8, 9, and 9, 8. For you know the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. And believe me, we are rich. We are unbelievably rich with the wealth of his presence, the comfort of his love, the strength of his power, the significance of being called his children, and beyond that, Beyond your wildest dreams, his favor, it's a big deal. It's important. That's the grace of God. And it tells us even, talks more about the grace of God in 2 Corinthians 9, 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. You can face anything. If you've got his favor, you can face anything in life. Think about that. If God's for you, who can be against you? What can be against you? Man, the reality of that is overwhelming. This is the point that he's making here. And so it's really getting what we don't deserve, all of the wealth of heaven, everything that we need. Here's the next one. Adam brought condemnation. Christ brought justification. So this is a part of what we receive by his grace. Verse 16, and the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So justification is more than the forgiveness of sins, but listen to me, it's an invitation to all of God's love, presence, and provision. And then verse 18, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. 
For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many were made righteous. The word righteous is having the praise and applause of God. We talked about that a number of weeks ago. I mean, think about that. I have the praise and the applause of God. You are my beloved son. You're my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. That's righteousness. You are not just accepted but celebrated by a perfect God. This is to be loved by God passionately and intimately and despite our, our betrayal of him by our sin because all of that was taken care of on the cross. So we have access into the throne room of God. Adam brought death, Christ brought life. That's the next couple fill in the blanks. Verse 17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reign through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the last verse of our text, eternal life. What is eternal life? We have eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So think about that. Grace gives us justification, and we have life. What is eternal life? John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that we may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So what does that mean to know God? This word for know is more than facts about God, but friendship with God. It's more than information about God. It's intimacy with God. It's this mutual giving and receiving of love and truth between you and God. It's communion. It's relationship. It's intimacy. There's nothing better than that relationship with Him. By the way, your heart may be beating, you may be breathing, but you might be dead spiritually. You're only alive to the degree that you know Christ and walk with Him. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, not just knowing about Him, interacting with Him, walking with Him. There's nothing better than that. We can have a relationship with Him, talk to Him. He talks to us. He speaks to our hearts. He leads and guides us. And so... This is, this is a sweet, intimate relationship with God, the God of the universe. Now, I think this is on your notes. Every person in the world at this minute is either under the reign and rule of sin or else under the reign and rule of grace. You are either in Adam or in Christ. Where are you? Are you in Adam or are you in Christ? So how do we make the move from Adam to Christ? We can look in the, in the text. Look at Romans 5, 1 through 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, faith, faith in Christ, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're justified. We have peace with God. Through Him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace. We have His favor. which we stand, so this gives us stability in our life, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. By the way, I don't know if you noticed this, but in our reading, five times in verses 15 through 17, he says, and he wants us to know this, it's a free gift. 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 You can't earn it, but you can enter into it. You can receive it by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. If you've never done that, this would be a great night for you to do that. 
You acknowledge your sin that separates you from God. You believe that Christ died in your place for your sins. And you give your life to him. Commit your life to him. Enter into this relationship that he offers us. There's nothing better. Not a more important decision you can make for time and eternity. But notice that. But we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And then verse verse 3. More than that, we rejoice in our suffering. Now, why would he say that? More than that, we rejoice in our suffering because your suffering is never for nothing. Remember what Pastor Mark said last weekend? Nothing can trans... He says suffering has a purpose. Suffering has a purpose in God's hands. Now, I find it interesting because he goes in, he talks about this relationship. Remember the E.G.'s benefit sandwich? Okay, relationship, phenomenal relationship. Oh, by the way, here's the hope. How does that hope come? Suffering, endurance, character. By the way, the more character you have, the more hope you're going to have. God's trying to get character in you so that you have hope. Hope is not wishful thinking. It's confident, joyful expectation. You reach those times of hopelessness, don't take the the fork in the road that takes you to despair and bitterness. Take the fork in the road that leads to dependency beyond him. Put your trust in him. God's doing a work in your life. He's using suffering to develop endurance, endurance character, Christ-likeness, hope to lead to hope. Hope, I believe, is intimacy with him. I think, that, I think they're all kind of working simultaneously. There, there may be kind of a sequence to that, but they're really kind of working together. You can almost work better. The more hope you have, the more character you have. The more character you have, the more endurance you're going to have. Then you can face suffering. I think they kind of all work together. Suffering has a purpose. Remember what he said last week. It creates endurance like we never had before. I like that. Which develops character like we never had before. Which builds a confident hope in Jesus like we never had before. And then he said this. Heavenly Father, use this until you choose to remove this. You guys remember that? Okay. Here's my question. What if he never removes it? I want to quickly talk to you about not wasting your suffering or your thorns. I'm going to share a little bit of my life. I've got um, five herniated discs in my back. And I, I found that out through an MRI, went to a doc. I've had pain for the first month of this. I'm about a month and a half into this. It is the most excruciating pain I've ever had. And it's, not, it's going down my right leg. And so I had uh, a month of getting like one or two hours a night, and then I'm up for two to three hours, and then I'm back down. So I, I, I know sleep deprivation. So those of you that are young moms that have to get up, all, up and down all night, I feel bad for you. Okay, because that's hard. I know now why they use sleep deprivation to torture people in prison camps, okay? Because it's horrible. So I'm now kind of getting control, kind of managing my pain a little bit more. So I'm getting a lot more sleep. I'm so thankful for many of you that are praying for me. Thank you for that. But I'm telling you, these verses right here, 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, have just been sweet verses for me as I've meditated on them. And, and, I, and I know that I have not 
experienced pain like many people in this church. I know many of you, and so my heart goes out to you. Those of you that have chronic pain or chronic issues or you have hopelessness in your, in your life in some form or fashion, here's our hope. It's right here in these verses, 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. So I want to finish our time. We've got about 10 minutes. I want to just meditate on these verses, and I just want to share with you a little bit of what God's been speaking to my heart as I've worked through this. And, and so, um, 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, I put this on your, on your uh, notes. So to keep me from becoming conceited, he's, this is superior, superiority complex is what he's talking about here, because of the surpassing greatness of revelations. Just stop there just for a minute. Here's our problem. Here's the default mode of every Christian is to default towards religion. That somehow we think that we get blessing because of who we are and what we've done. No, we get blessing because of who he is and what he's done. And the problem with that is that we become conceited. And we tend to uh, become very self-righteous and holier than thou. I put this down in my notes. God loves me because of not, he doesn't love me because of who I am and what I've done, but because of who he is and what he's done. And if I think the other, the reverse of that, if I think that he loves me because of who I am and what I've done, that's very self-righteous, self-centered. I'm going to become critical, holier than thou, sanctimonious, defensive, unteachable, unforgiving, and unthankful. That's a religious attitude. Man, I don't want that. That'll take you out. There's two thieves that will keep you from the power of the gospel working in your life. One is legalism. It's all truth, no grace. The other one is more of that license, it's that, um, more, uh, that extreme progressive Christianity, it's all grace and no truth. But God, God transforms us through both grace and truth, we have to have that balance. And so we've got to keep from becoming conceited. Uh, and part of that conceit is where, where it says in 1 Corinthians 8.1, knowledge puffs up, love builds up. So if you're, in, if you're coming to church taking good notes, and you've got a lot of information about God, but you're not allowing it to take you to a place of you know, theology, doesn't bring you to doxology worship, then you're becoming religious. It should humble you. It should convict you. It should comfort you. It should transform your life. Otherwise, you're just cramming your cranium full of information. You're going to become conceited. You're going to become very religious. You're just, as he says in Matthew 15, 7 through 10, that the Pharisees, they worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They're not being transformed by it. We've got to be transformed by his word. And so he's giving him this thorn in the flesh to keep him from being conceited. Look at verse 7. A thorn was given me in the flesh. Literally, that's a stake. If you read this in the Greek, it's like a stake driven into your skin and your body. So maybe you're here tonight and you have something that's chronic in your life. Maybe it's a relationship. Oh, my goodness. You guys keep having problems or it's, or it's physical or maybe it's financial. It's like a stake driven into your, it's like a tent stake driven into your skin, into your flesh. A messenger of Satan to harass me. That idea of harass is literally, it, the Greek actually, the enemy is striking me with his fist. Boom! Right in the face. To keep me from becoming conceited. There's that word again. So this is what we need to understand is that Satan has two weapons. He has pain and pleasure. 
He will either hurt you so bad you will doubt God's goodness or give you so much pleasure you don't think you need God's goodness. And the solution to both is the same. God is more valuable and satisfying than, than what I lose in life. He always is. And God is more valuable and satisfying than what I gain in life. Satan uses pain to discourage us, to bring about hopelessness, to, to take courage out of us. That's what it means to be discouraged. Discouraged means to take courage out of us, to when we encourage someone, we're putting courage in them. God is going to use suffering to develop endurance, character, hope. He's wanting to put courage in us. Satan's wanting to take courage out of us. Discouragement is an important index to where you are spiritually. If you are never discouraged, then you don't care about anything. But if you're always discouraged, it's because you are not living in the reality of His sufficient grace. Somehow you have forgotten that His grace, His grace, amazing grace, is greater than your sin and suffering. So three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Believe me, up in the middle of the night, <laughs> you do a lot of pleading. I'm telling you, the Lord has really been sweet with me in the middle of the night in my pain. God is so good. I just love him more. I think I have such a deeper relationship because of this. But three times, I was pleading more than three times, okay? A lot of times that it would leave me. But he said to me, my grace, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will. Now, this is crazy. I mean, this almost seems a little bit crazy, but therefore, because of this, he spoke to my heart, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. And this is, this is his response. This is how you know you're, you're getting it, you're understanding it, what he's wanting to do in the suffering. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly. He's using a superlative there. More gladly? Huh? I'm going to boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. So what is this sufficient grace? I think it's everything that we need in Christ. I think it's, I mean, we've already talked about it. I'm forgiven. I'm reconciled. I'm adopted into his family. I'm lavished with his love, a love unlike I could experience from anyone else. I'm empowered by his Holy Spirit. I'm called to make him known to this world. I have purpose. I have significance beyond anything else. I'm guaranteed a place in heaven. By the way, <clears throat> If he never did another thing for us, even if we had a life of pain and suffering from this point on, we should praise him and glorify him all the way into heaven because of what we have in his grace. That would be enough if we really understand that, if we understand what we have in him. I love the testimony of Jerry, uh, Johnny Erickson Tata. She'd been a quadriplegic. Uh, she became a quadriplegic uh, when she was 16 years old, diving into a shallow lake, and she's now 73 years old. She suffered for 57 years in that wheelchair. And what a, what a woman of God. In fact, I, I wanted to mention her because Johnny and friends have donated money to our children's ministry for children with special needs. And as our children's ministry continues to reach out in the community and, and minister to kids with special needs. But I wanted you to hear what she has to say about her pain. She says, I would rather be in this wheelchair and know Christ than to be out of this wheelchair and not know him. 
She also said, he has chosen not to heal me, but to hold me. The more intense the pain, the closer the embrace. Suffering drives you into God and shows you resources you never knew you had and never knew you needed. I, I believe that when it says in Psalm 34, 18, God is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Wait a minute, I thought he's close to every believer. I think he's got it. There's a special closeness to those that are suffering. When you go through suffering, I think there's, and this is what he's talking about here, there's, a, there's an intimacy that you're going to experience in suffering in fact, this is what I found, that there's no suffering is too hard to endure if it increases my capacity to experience more of His glory and greatness and beauty in my life. And I think that's what happens. Psalm 147, 3 through 4, the one who names and numbers the stars can heal our broken heart and bind up our wounds. God never promised us a painless or a problem-free life. Did you guys know that? Remember the last words he told his disciples? In this world, you will have tribulation. That's a promise. And almost every one of them were martyred for their faith in Christ. But take heart, I've overcome the world. So he hasn't promised us a painless or problem-free life, but this is what he's promised us, his presence, his power and peace to face our, our pain and problems. Look at verse 10. For the sake of Christ, for his glory then, I am content. ha, ha, ha. Are you kidding me? I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. He's saying, bring it on. I love this. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What is contentment? Contentment is an inward, gracious, quiet spirit that joyfully rests in the presence, providence, and promises of God. You see, this quiet spirit is where you have no bitterness over the past. There's no complaining about the present. There's no worry about the future. You just have a quiet spirit. You're just trusting in Him. Quiet spirit. Contentment is an inward, gracious, quiet spirit that joyfully rests in the presence, providence, and the promises of God, regardless of the circumstances. This is what Paul is talking about here. Now, Jesus didn't suffer so that we wouldn't suffer, but that when we suffer, we would suffer well. You guys agree with that? No? I do. I do. I love a, a quote that I came across a number of years ago. This was actually by, from Chuck Smith. And he said, if I do well when all is well, that says nothing to the world around me. But if I do well when all else is falling and failing, then indeed is my life a witness to the world. Now, this is not a denial of the reality of the thorns in our life. Whatever thorns you might have, it's not a denial of those, those thorns, but it's a declaration that Christ is greater, that he will fill you with hope. He will give you a confident expectation in the midst of that. Second uh, Corinthians 6.10, it says, we are sorrowful but always rejoicing. First Thessalonians 4.13, we grieve, but we don't grieve like the world grieves. Why? Because we have hope. Not wishful thinking, confident, joyful expectation. God, you've got me. You love me. You're going to take care of me. You're bigger than this. Your grace is greater than my sin and suffering. I don't trust him because I see his hand in my circumstances. I trust him because I see his heart on the cross. And if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but freely gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him freely give us all things? Romans 8. 31 through 32. Let me finish with a quote by C.S. Lewis. This is what God's wanting to do in our life. When you think of suffering, think of this. 
It's, it's really laid out there for us, endurance, character, hope. But think of this. I, I'll simplify it for you. Think of maturity. He's trying to make you more mature. Endurance, that's character. And he's trying to increase your intimacy with him. And if you've got greater level of maturity and intimacy, you're going to have greater impact in ministry. That's what he's doing. I can tell you exactly what he's doing in any kind of suffering that we go through, any kind of thorn that you might have. Here's what C.S. Lewis says. Imagine yourself as a house. God comes in to rebuild it. At first, you can understand what he's doing, getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. You know those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But pre presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The answer is he is throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. If we let him, he will make the feeblest and the filthiest of us into dazzling, radiant, immortal creatures pulsating all through with such energy, joy, and wisdom and love as we can now as we cannot now imagine, a bright stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power, delight, and goodness. The process will be long and in parts painful, but that is what we are in for, nothing less. Listen to me. His power, his grace is greater than all our sin and suffering. Next weekend, we're going to talk about a whole new way of life. I retitled it Newness of Life, Romans 6, 1 through 14. And so Romans 6 gives us principles for life change. You don't want to miss that. I'll be up front at the end of the service along with any available elders and leaders. If you are here tonight and you're struggling with some area in your life where you got hopelessness, oh my goodness, this will be the night to get prayer. Love to pray with you. Can I help you with that? Maybe if you're on the verge of even suicidal, I can't help but think that there might be a person here tonight or maybe this weekend that's struggling with suicide. We'd love to pray with you. Whatever your problem might be, whatever's going on, if you're new, we'd love to meet you. If you need prayer, we'd love to pray with you. If you have any questions, we'd love to answer those questions for you. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? Father God, thank you for this great reminder that your grace is greater than all of our sin and suffering. You not only forgive us of all of our sins, but you invite us into intimacy with you that is life's most satisfying reality. And in that relationship with you, you use suffering to give us endurance and character and hope unlike we've ever had before so that we can show the world that you are more desirable and satisfying than all that life can give or suffering and death could ever take away from us. We pray these things all for our joy and your glory in Jesus' beautiful name and everyone said, amen. Love you guys.